0: Hello everyone, and welcome to The Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. Together we'll watch, snack and chat our way through books and films set in the ancient world. We bring our expertise as ancient historians to the table to dissect every detail. We hope you'll grab your favourite beverage and snacks and join us every week on this adventure. Before we start spilling the tea, a brief note on our content. The Reading Party Podcast is created for adult audiences. The stories of the ancient world are full of violence and undisguised sexual content, and your hosts aren't afraid to curse up a storm. For those reasons, this podcast is not suitable for under-18s, and certain episodes may not be suitable for those living with trauma. This season, we're focusing on stories set in ancient Egypt, and we'll be bringing in guest hosts that are subject matter experts to help us really dig into the history of what we're reading and watching. With that in mind, let's get going. Lexi and I have our teas and are so ready to start spilling the tea on a ton of ancient stories.
1: Well, everyone, welcome to season two of the Reading Party Podcast. We are very excited because not only are we going to the sands of Egypt, we are starting with what has been one of my favorite books for a very long time now. We are reading River God. And also with the new season, we're doing a new thing where we are going to have some guest hosts come on who are subject matter experts. So today we have with us our friend Brianna Jackson, who's an Egyptologist, and she's currently in Cairo. It's very exciting. And she loves this book. So we thought she would be a great fit to have on for this book.
0: Brianna, welcome to the Reading Party podcast. Could you just tell us who you are and where people can find you?
2: Thank you. I'm Brianna Jackson. I am an Egyptologist. I got my degree in May 2021, and I specialize in the Amarna period, which is some centuries after the the time period of River God. And I have a YouTube channel. My at on there is Dr. Brianna Jackson, and I'm also on X Twitter, <laughs> Beladria, Instagram, the real Beladria, and Threads. But who the hell uses Threads? I mean. <laughs> And I think that's all of the places where I am. Oh, I have a website as well, briannacjackson.com.
0: Thank you so much. And all of that will be in the show notes for anyone who wants to find Brianna elsewhere after they finish listening to the podcast.
1: So without further ado, I think we can get into this. And Megan, you've not read this book before. So would you please grace us with one of your really fun recaps? I can absolutely
0: do My recap, I'm going to say I do have some issues with the book, which makes me sad because I know how much you both like it, but it's very nicely written and really, really long book. I've read to about the halfway point and that's 400 pages. So my summary is not going to be as detailed as it would normally be because we would be here for like three hours. It's from the point of view of Slave in a very Powerful Egyptian household, his master is what Grand Vizier Lord okay. Intef. So we open with a, a description of hippopotamus hunting, which was really really cool. I did enjoy that. You get a taste of the relationship between Taser, who's the the slave, and his master's daughter, who's a, he's essentially raised. Lustrous and his kind of protege Tanus who is madly in love with Lustrous, and there's this whole wonderful love story that goes on through the book. In very broad strokes, Lostris gets married off to the pharaoh, and Tanis is very, very sad and upset, and due to something that Tanis had, had done previously, the pharaoh essentially says you have two years to rid Egypt of these roving bands of brigands, or I will kill you. Fantastic. Good. Good. Well done. So Tannis is heartbroken because his lady love has been married off to pharaoh. She's kind of pissed, if we're honest, because she thought that she was going to be married to Tannis and she's not. She's married to the pharaoh who seems like a nice enough man, but she does not in love with him and he's quite a lot older than she is. Which, you know, to be fair, is the fate that we do, do expect for most noble-born women of this time period. You kind of get married off to an old dude and make babies for him. So I think Lustrous is maybe the only person who's terribly surprised by what happens at this point. And as a, what, 14 year old, I think, you know, fair enough, I'd have been less than thrilled with that particular fate. So they go off and Tater devises this super fantastic plan to make sure that Lustrous doesn't have to actually have sex with the pharaoh for the first 90 days of their marriage. The pharaoh doesn't have an heir, he's got lots of Daughters, but no sons. It's framed as In order to conceive a son, you must abstain from all sexual intercourse for like 90 days. And he's already been eating like copious amounts of fried bull's testicles, which apparently is super delicious but he says that if he has to eat any more he will start mooing as the cows walk by which was quite an amusing image so tater gives him a different diet and says you have to keep your hands off my mistress for 90 days and and the fair is like "Mm, okay cool fair enough if it gets me a son it gets me a son so that that kind of happens and yeah lots of lovely story about lustrous kind of settling into life at elephantine and, and all this kind of stuff and eventually tater goes back down to or up to karnak no, down to Karnak. Yes. Up yes. Egypt is south. Good. Brianna yes. is nodding. Fantastic. I do remember <laughs> something useful from my Egyptian history lessons. So he goes back down south to Karnak to find Tanis, who has been essentially drunk for the past, what, three months because he's, he's so heartbroken. And there's this prostitute in his secret hideout place and... Tata kicks out the prostitute and half drowns Tannis in an attempt to sober him up and then verbally berates him, which I did quite enjoy. He was like, what on earth are you doing? My mistress is over there married off to a guy that she doesn't love and she's like waiting for you and she said she will wait for an eternity and you can't wait three fucking months. You're already drinking what 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 is what is wrong with you sir so that kind of kicks some life back into him oh and there's a, a key pop plot point which i've completely missed tater has like gift of foresight and has seen a, a vision that says in five years the pharaoh will be dead so lostress will be essentially free to marry whoever she wants because she will also but bed pharaoh a male son an heir so that's all Fantastic. Good. Fantastic news. So Tanis and Tata go off and they get Tanis's army regiment because he's a, a commander in the army and they go and they find these brigands in quite a very, well, quite a very clever way, in a very amusing way, at least because they dress up the army regiment as uh, Assyrian slave girls, which was hilarious to read about as a Assyriologist, fantastic <laughs> and march them halfway through the desert and then these brigands essentially come out and demand their payment for safe passage and and is like screw that no thank you and ultimately they like, they kill all of the bandits and then Tater goes back off to Lustrous and stuff happens. Tannus keeps doing his Tannus thing and killing ba- uh, brigands and finding their leaders and trying to track down who the ultimate bad guy is, who is this person called Anxeth, who is the person that all of the different brigand groups answer to. And if you've been paying attention with even two brain cells, you know exactly who this is quite early on. It's Lustrous's dad. He's just not a nice dude. So you've kind of worked this out as you're going along, but no one else has except Tater. You learn later on that actually he's been Intef's chief go between for the brigands and he's been hiding all of this gold and orchestrating all of these raids and, and so on and so forth. So while Tanis is off doing his thing and getting a reputation as being essentially god himself, he's referred to as Ankhoris, which is brother of Horus. So we've got Anc Seth, Anc Horus, Fantastic. Lustris ultimately thinks that Tanis is dead because Tanis has faked his own death. So she's starving herself as well. Teenagers, seriously. <laughs> teenagers and i have a hearty amount of sympathy because i do remember being this kind of age and being deeply in love with someone and it is all encompassing when you're that age really that is all there is to life so yeah she's she's trying to starve herself and tater gets back and is horrified to find that she's almost dead he, like if i had arrived tomorrow then then she it would have been too late so he nurses her back to health and the pharaoh is told once again you have to, like, you have to leave this girl alone and to his credit, it's not like he's been demanding that that she have sex with him while she's been starving herself. Like, no, no, just just leave her. She'll she'll be strong and healthy and and give you a son. Don't worry, don't worry. So she gets back to her full health and is deeply thrilled to hear that that Tanis is alive. Hooray! And that he's this amazing hero, Aunt chorus Hooray! And Tata tells her all of these wonderful, heroic, majestic stories about her love, and it's it's wonderful and it's kind of star-crossed lovers with a healthy dose of overenthusiastic children type thing. Yeah, it's adorable. It's absolutely adorable. And anyway, sorry, I'm getting very distracted. There is at one point like a royal cheetah hunt and Lostris goes out into the desert with all of the rest of the court and Tater has arranged for Tannis to come and meet them there because they haven't seen each other for, for months and months and months and it's far too long when you're a teenager and you're in love so they meet each other and there's this massive wind and sandstorm that blows in so they hide in this cave system and Lostris and Tannis have a lot of sex we'll get to that later because the framing of that is one of the things I have issues with but they have lots of sex and then after two days the sandstorm dissipates and Tannis fucks off and does his, his killing of brigands thing and lostris and Tata go back out and is like it's a miracle the lady Lustris has returned and she's alive and hooray everyone's very happy and ultimately it turns out that Lustris has conceived a son not with the pharaoh but with obviously you know Tannis because it wouldn't be a decent love story if she had to carry a child that wasn't the child of her beloved but the pharaoh obviously is told that it's his because you're not going to tell the pharaoh anything else and then we get to the big reveal where we find out that Intef Lord Intef is in fact Ang Seth and has been orchestrating all of these raids and he is responsible for the ruining of Tannis's father. We're not entirely sure why. I'm hoping at some point someone tells us what the fuck was going on there because it seems very extreme for it to be just a personal dislike. And Intef tries to say, no, 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 it's not me, it's not me, it's not me, and it's done in this very public arena. Tanis says, if there's anyone here who who knows, who had dealings with Lord Intef as Seth, step forward and give me evidence. And Tata stands up and essentially says, well, hi, <laughs> I kept all of his books. I was his personal messenger for years and years and years. I can show you where the, the gold that he's been siphoning off uh, is hidden. and. The pharaoh says, well, if there's gold, I would very much like to see it, please. So ultimately, Intef is found guilty because he is very, very guilty. But of course, he escapes. Hands up who did not see that one coming. No one's hand is up because everyone saw this coming. So he escapes and fucks off. And we're we're not entirely sure where the hell he's gone, but he's gone somewhere. And at this point, there's like three quarters of the book left. So, you know, this guy is coming back at some point. Like probably in quite a major way. So yes, that kind of carries on and, and Lostris has her baby and it's it's deeply lovely and very moving. And Tannis gets promoted because Lostris is now like queen. She is chief wife of the pharaoh, so she's queen. And she very casually suggests that maybe Tanis should be promoted because she hears such good things about him as a military commander. But of course, you know best my my divine husband. And the pharaoh's like, I had that same thought this morning, my dear. Thank you. So Tanis is promoted and everyone's very happy and it's all wonderful. And then Egypt gets attacked. The delta gets attacked because at this point, Egypt has been split into two kingdoms. There are two pharaohs. It's It's a whole thing. Northern Egypt is attacked and defeated by the Hyksos. And I'm like, oh good, Hyksos, I know what we're doing now. I remember the Hyksos. (laughs) Ha! It's been a hot minute since I did Egyptology, but I I do remember the Hyksos. And then you have this whole battle scene, and there are these chariots that are amazing, and they're like ships that go across the sand, and no one's entirely sure what the fuck they are, and no one's seen a horse before. And I can see horses being quite scary if you've not seen them before, and suddenly they appear, and they're pulling these chariot things, and there are men on horseback with like spears and bows and arrows and stuff and the army gets roundly defeated the pharaoh ultimately dies so then Lustrus is made regent and i kind of stopped when they were heading back downriver to try and save the rest of of the kingdom so that was very long i've missed out a whole load of stuff i am sure probably stuff that's quite important but yes yeah, someone else should say something
1: Well, I love your recaps because I always want the new perspective because, you know, I've read this so many times, right? I've just memorized it. So, So I do enjoy hearing from someone else what they think. There's a lot to unpack. Let's start with the broader strokes. We have an Egyptologist with us. Now, the caveat I say with this book all the time is it is a novel of its time. It's beautifully written, but there's a lot of language and other things that would not be acceptable if it were written today. This was written quite a long time ago. And so with the knowledge that a lot of it is quite kind of inappropriate, let's go into it. So Brianna, as an Egyptologist, when you are reading this, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Well, let me just start
2: by saying that this is the book that got me interested in Egypt in the first place specifically the the Second Intermediate Period, and it's because of this book that the Second Intermediate Period is kind of my, my guilty pleasure, and I don't actually do scholarly, scholarly research on it, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm like, I can't touch it, I can't do it, but I just, I love the Second Intermediate Period uh, because of this book. Um, and. <laughs> <laughs> so I read it before I became an Egyptologist obviously and it's been a while since I've read it and now that I am I'm you know a couple of years out of my PhD as an Egyptologist I'm reading it again and I'm like that's wrong that's wrong that's wrong <laughs> That's frustrating <laughs> but but overall it's still completely fascinating how he is able to capture what he thinks ancient Egypt looked like based on the art Because the way he describes stuff, it felt like I was looking at the tomb paintings of New Kingdom tombs in Luxor on the West Bank. And at one point he was talking about painting (laughs) the mortuary temple of the the king with all of these different colors of blues. And I'm like, oh my God, that sounds like the tomb of Nebamun. And because that one has all of these just really beautiful different shades of, of, of blue, which was quite new. And yeah, some of it's anachronistic and it comes off as very new kingdom. Whereas this would have been 17th dynasty. I mean, I I can (laughs) can give a a list of of things. I I don't know how, how long you want me to, to go with that. But like in in general, I think if anybody wants to have an imaginative understanding of ancient egypt this is still a pretty good book for that
1: good good i think one of the parts of the book that i love the most in the beginning is the pageant that goes crazy (laughs) off the rails (laughs) very violent and bloody one (laughs) yes and it is unfortunately one of the more graphic parts but i mean we can't not talk about this but now did they actually stage this pageant in ancient egypt at this time would that have been like a thing or was this completely just let's throw that in there
2: you know that that's a really excellent question. There's so much that we don't know about practice of cult because this is stuff that would have taken place in towns. And you know, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we know about ancient Egypt is based almost entirely on a funerary context. But we do know that there was an annual festival of Osiris in Abydos. Whether this took place in other cities, it's possible in the Middle Kingdom. Traveling to Abydos annually was a major deal. There's this really cool stela that's at the Louvre Museum. I don't remember the name of it, but it dates to, I think, the 11th dynasty. I actually have a video on it. It has this really interesting register that seems to show the festival of Osiris taking place. Did it happen the way it happens in the book where you have an actual stage and Osiris getting chopped up into little pieces and no. (laughs) I think maybe not, but they they certainly did have some kind of reenactment ceremony, it seems, uh, at least in Abydos. And I think in ancient Egypt, a lot of stuff wasn't really something that was available to everybody to see. It was more mysterious. It was more symbolic. To the level that it's described in, in this book, I think that's pure fiction, but it's, it's still pretty awesome because it, it helps the reader to understand some parts of ancient Egyptian religion and how central it is to their culture.
0: I really appreciated the emphasis on the pharaoh's mortuary complex and how strongly that figures, not only for the pharaoh, but for the rest of society. I found that really, really interesting.
2: Yeah, it was also very new kingdom Very New Kingdom, because this doesn't happen until New Kingdom, where you have these stone mortuary temples. And then in the book, they say that his mortuary temple was dedicated to Thoth. That wasn't the thing. (laughs) But in general, yes, especially what we see in the New Kingdom and obviously in the Old Kingdom with all of the the pyramids and Middle Kingdom with pyramids as well. But on a smaller scale, it is very much a, a focus of everybody. I mean, how can it not be? It's this massive monument that's taking up a lot of space and a lot of labor force.
1: I also want to quickly mention that I feel like the way in which you first come to the book and the material also kind of affects how it's perceived. So I will mention that Megan is reading the book, which I recommend if you're going to read it for the first time, read the book. It, that's how I started. That's how Brianna started. I have been re-reading, listening to it via audiobook this time. And I want to say that the dynamic Mark Meadows who voices the characters and, and reads it beautifully adds like an extra dimension to this beautiful story. But also the way he reads stuff, it the characterization of some of these characters changes. And I don't know, Brianna, since you're also doing the audiobook for the first time, does that change how you're taking in the story since you can't control the internal character voices or the way that something would be presented yeah
2: it's really difficult for me I, i've already whined to you about it i think <laughs> it's really hard for me to listen to audiobooks and it, it's also really hard for me to listen to podcasts it's an audio thing i don't know what it is i don't know what's wrong with me but the thing that kind of takes me out is the different voices. <laughs> I'm not used to that. It, that's really odd to me. But in terms of does it really kind of change the way the, the story feels for me? No. no, not for me.
1: The only thing that really takes me out of it with Mark Meadows reading is that he mispronounces a few notable things. And I get it. If you don't have an Egyptologist telling you, it's probably pretty hard. But in the audiobook, he's always talking about, I will go to elephantine Island and I'm like, it's Elephantine, it's Elephantine. Stop. This hurts my ears.
0: The but, thing is, uh... when you're doing that kind of work though, and we just had the audiobook for one of my husband's books come out, and the narrator does an incredible job, and he will text Josh a list of words. I need pronunciations for these. If you're doing that kind of historical work and you're not a hundred percent sure, it means checking because Yeah, your average person maybe isn't going to know. I mean, I think I already mispronounced it anyway, but enough people will know that it's going to be jarring. So I feel like if this is your job, you should probably just check.
1: That's just the big one that I notice. I feel like there's more. Brianna, have you noticed him mispronouncing some other major things? Because Egyptologists do pronounce
2: things differently themselves. There are people who will say Elephantine, Elephantine, and it's. Not always across the board <laughs> the same pronunciation. As you as you already know, I was listening to the audiobook. I don't have the the physical copy with me. He was pronouncing some ancient Egyptian words, and I wanted to see them written because I wasn't sure what the words actually were. And I was thinking, well, oh, it would have been a good idea for me to double check on this. And he did invent some meanings, like Lustrous's name doesn't exist at all in ancient Egypt. <laughs> There's <that's> nothing. <laughs> Egyptian about her name, but he invented a a, a meaning for it. I did actually pick up on his elephantine. I did pick up on that, but nothing else really stood out to me except for unguent. He would say unguent. Isn't it unguent like an unguent jar? I think so. That's how I would pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. He was like unguent. It was very oh.
1: (laughs) Maybe that's a a different like dialect, British. Yeah cuz he's a British man. So I'm like why is this hard to pronounce with your very posh sounding British accent. <laughs> Maybe that
2: is the posh version of it. I don't know. <laughs> but that's what that's what stood out to me and he did some things that also stood out to me were the different names of of Egypt when he was saying Kemet Mary and he also it was the name of Memphis actually that he assigned to all of Egypt which I thought was interesting but I picked up on those I haven't gotten to the Hyksos part yet so that might be where a lot of his pronunciations could fall apart we'll see (laughs) so we'll see what happens with that I'll I'll try to pay attention to to more for our next go around
1: here I mean, I think he's pretty good all around, like from from because I've listened to the audiobook a few times as well by now. And the last time the most the most recent time I listened, I think, was last year so from my memory, he, mm-hmm. he's pretty good about almost everything. It, it's only one or two big things that I'm just like, every time he says this, I make a very unhappy <laughs> face and kind of <laughs> cross my eyes and go mm, why couldn't they just fix this so but maybe maybe i'll catch something as i'm really listening in the second go around because i know the second half especially once they flee down to what we know is nubia it, it could also become more complicated and, and stuff i'm, no, I'm sure he pronounces like the Shaluk names wrong so i'm, I'm sure that is
0: Tata any less irritating in the audiobook or is he always a self-obsessed conceited prick Serious question.
2: I love him. I love him. He's so vain and I love it. (laughs) No, it doesn't change at all. If I
1: have to read about one more miraculous invention. Oh, believe me, there's so many more coming, especially when they flee. Like, there's so many more. That
2: is the Mary Sue of ancient Egypt. Yes, yes, I was thinking that literally exact same thing. Yes, exactly. Oh my god, it is, it's hilarious, but I mean, it's fantastic. And it goes so well with the kind of, like, hyperbolic language that the author uses. <laughs> I think it's I, fantastic.
1: I love Taita. That's part of what I think makes him so great of a character to me. Cause I'm like, if it was Taita being smart and amazing and being able to have these magical powers and do all these things, but wasn't vain, I would kind of be like, that's boring. You should like hype yourself, be your own hype man because you're amazing. But he hypes himself cause he's so fucking vain. And he's like, I am not going to brag, but you know.
0: But I am incredible.
1: <laughs> Yes, but I did it perfectly. And I I love when he comes back. Basically, they come back to Thebes the second year around after everything has happened. And they're watching the pageant. And then they're touring kind of Pharaoh's funerary complex again. And I, I love how he goes on this sort of diatribe of, well... Ever since I became part of Pharaoh's royal household, I see what they're doing here. They're ruining my temple. They're ruining it because they did not keep with my instructions. So it's fine, but it would have been better had I stayed here to do it. I love it, man. I love it.
2: One thing I think might be worth noting, or maybe it isn't, but Wilbur Smith, the author of this book, is himself African. Mm -hmm. He's from Zimbabwe. And so, you know, he's, he's writing about his, his own continent as well, which is, I don't know if that's something that is interesting to people or not. But, you know, I mean, he, he's kind of taking us on a long journey throughout Northeast Africa, which I think is kind of, kind of cool. I don't know. But did, did that strike you as interesting?
1: <laughs> I mean, it affects the way that I see and understand how he wrote it. Because Mm -hmm. I guess also that, for me at least, there is language in the book that a modern reader would definitely read and be like, oh, that's super racist or think that just like this is inappropriate. And I definitely agree. Let's just go on the record and say I agree. Like the writing is not great. But I guess in my mind that has always kind of factored in that like it's not just another – white European from Europe never having been to the continent or like been once to one country and then decided to write this thing. So it always kind of makes up for the fact that I'm like, okay, he's from there. And while he still uses bad language in some snippets, like it, it's still just a dated way, but also it's still, I, I, I see it as being still trying to be, respectful in some ways that like Mm -hmm. someone not from there would probably just ignore Mm -hmm. so it you know not to be an apologist or anything but it it makes it a little better i don't know is that how you guys would feel tater is very disparaging of
0: everyone who's non-egyptian and most of the egyptians if we're honest man is a class apologist the, the likes of which i have never seen but all non-elite Egyptians are inferior and all foreigners are inferior even to them so I kind of assumed that all of the barbaric uncultured uncivilized words that he was using to describe other people was supposed to be a reflection of an Egyptian exceptionalist mindset. As a non-Egyptologist it rang relatively true because remember some of this kind of viewpoint coming across from some of my Egyptian seminars and it's also something that you see in like the neo-Assyrian rhetoric is very much non-Assyrians are just like we're doing them a favor by conquering them really because we're bringing them civilization so it was kind of that attitude that I was getting rather than Wilbur Smith's own personal like viewpoint about people outside of Egypt. Brianna did as an egyptologist does that kind of uh accurately reflect maybe what we might expect from elite egyptians
2: oh oh yeah oh, of course and i mean one thing that i would also actually like to note is that wilbur smith comes from a colonizer family actually and i feel as though he is writing taita a lot as himself is also written in first person narrative so i think maybe some cultural bias is slipping into his writing there but for ancient egyptians oh my god yes like the, the xenophobia and <laughs> was was pretty outrageous and it is kind of frustrating that taita who is a slave and i think in later books i think it's in the seventh scroll which was actually written before river god if i remember correctly he's actually a syrian There's
0: a very brief point in River God where he says he was born in the mountains. And I read that, I was like, oh, so you're not actually Egyptian. But there isn't any actual detail about it that I found so far.
2: Yeah, I think they bring it up in the seventh scroll. I can't remember where I found it, but yeah, I think he says he's like from Syria or something. And so it is really interesting that he, who is a foreigner and he is a slave, he is, as you say, a, a class apologist, which is itself very odd, but at the same time, he has risen up from a very low status so he's benefiting quite a lot from it and i think that it is a reason why he would be apologizing for it because he's benefiting very much from it do you yeah. get
0: the same class divisions i assume you do with the elites looking down on everyone who's non-elite or is it not that pronounced
2: i think if we look at the disparity of material culture that would probably indicate that, yeah, there was definitely a you can't touch us, we're up here kind of thing. In the arts, you clearly see elite people being served by non-elite people who are usually not clothed very well. And we also have literature where people are like, there's this one, it's the Litany of the Trades, I think is what it's called. I can't remember. (laughs) Failing as an Egyptologist right now. But it's really disparaging against non-elite careers so certainly they would look down i mean i think that's true of pretty much every society in the history of mankind isn't it unfortunately i would agree with you there Mm.
1: it is always struck me as odd that yes taita is not native egyptian and yet he becomes like the snootiest of all but you know what it kind of tracks because it's really bad and I'm, i feel like i might be starting to offend someone and i hope i don't because that's not the intent but okay you know how like born again religious people become like the most religious even more than the people who were like born into it <laughs> yeah that's like what I think of Taita I'm like oh my god you're just a crazy born again religious person where because you didn't start out as that you lean the most into it and then just go so hard like way harder than you had to but he did it because then he starts because there's so many points in the book where he's just like well we Egyptians think this or we are I think even says at some points in the book like we are more cultured, we are more civilized than X, Y, or Z. When he's out with Tanis in the desert trying to find all the shrikes, he essentially, when they do that ruse and they dress the soldiers up as women, like the way in which he's like describing them, I'm like, holy crap, this is like uncomfy. I forgot how terrible this was. How uncivilized
0: the Assyrians are for making their women wear veils and and long dresses. And we're a much more civilized country. Our women wear skirts occasionally.
2: That that is very ancient Egyptian. That, that actually is. I mean, you see this in the story of Sinue, where Sinue he's very high up in the in the court, and then the king dies. And somehow he thinks it's his fault, even though he wasn't there. <laughs> and he runs away to the Levant, where he builds a life and he starts dressing like a Levantine. He grows facial hair. And then the new king, Senwazret, sends somebody to go bring him back home. And he goes back home and they're like, ah, who are you? We have to re-Egyptianize you. You look like a savage right now. So they, they take off all of his his Asiatic clothes. Oh, that's a terrible term. I'm sorry I said that. And they shave him and they're like, okay, now you are an Egyptian. You are a civilized person. So this is definitely something that the ancient Egyptians thought. And they complained, I don't know what the text is, but they've complained about the food that people eat in Nubia and how it's just, it's not Egyptian. If you're not eating Egyptian food, if you're not speaking the Egyptian language, wearing Egyptian clothes, following the Egyptian gods then you you are just basically not even human at this
1: point. It struck me, though, because as you see the description of the Assyrian women and how he's just disparaging this, and he's just like, oh, this is strange and weird. It got me thinking, because as a classicist, right, I'm flashing back to accounts of the Persian Wars, when you have all the Greeks being like, of course they are barbarians they wear pants what (laughs) self-respecting person wears pants and these barbarians bar 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 and it's very funny that you have like similar (laughs) accounts in the greek sources being like how uncivilized is it that you wear pants i mean goodness me i found it funny that you're being disparaged for essentially being the opposite you the most opposite you can get of being promiscuous which is so funny because we <laughs> these days you're like oh short skirts you're going to get in trouble that ha- that is not appropriate you need to cover up and be modest and i'm just like modesty is so like 2000 BC disgusting <laughs> terrible you need to be more promiscuous practically assyrian
0: that's just living in the stone ages people
1: yes like it's terrible. Like, like how dare you be modest? How awful.
2: Othering was something very common in all ancient civilizations. Uh, as an Assyriologist, Megan, do you, do you know of any instances of othering? Yeah, uh, you get it. Like early on in Sumerian texts and
0: and later mm. Akkadian stuff, you get people in Mesopotamia do and in the near Assyrian period, they have this annual expansion of the empire and it's very much framed as bringing civilization to the uncivilized world outside of, of the near Assyrian borders. And it, it's a divine requirement almost. I don't think it's necessarily framed as a benevolent act, but it's definitely seen as being somehow beneficial to the people that you're conquering because you're kind of bringing them into the Neo-Assyrian fold and it's just life is better if you're a Neo-Assyrian.
1: I'm noticing a very strong through line for all of these, you know, ancient cultures. Hmm, I wonder why that is, but Yeah, the ancient world, (laughs) man, it was a brutal place. It's basically just a whole bunch of, if you're not from here, then you are strange and weird and too modest for my culture. And if you're from (laughs) here, then you are perfect and wonderful. (laughs) Take off off your pants. Join us. (laughs) It's
2: going to be your your new tagline.
0: (laughs) The Reading Party Podcast. Take off your pants.
1: (laughs)
2: <laughs> Which brings
0: a whole different connotation if you're speaking British English, by the way.
1: Oh gosh. Okay, before we devolve more, I have to get to the other big through line. Our love struck teenagers. And knowing I forgot Lost Just was 14. I literally forgot her age. But then when I was like, she's 14, I was like, it's Romeo and Juliet. She was 14.
0: It's Romeo and Juliet with a creepy foster father who was in love with his daughter. That whole relationship i i know it (laughs) opens with him essentially singing a sexual ode to how beautiful she is and then you find out that he essentially raised her and then later on he's talking about lubricating her to get her ready for losing her virginity (laughs) and he's getting turned on i'm like holy shit dude this is your child this is All kinds of no. Like, I don't give a flying fuck that you're a eunuch. You get your hands off that girl right now, sir.
2: And then he gets jealous when she's like, oh, that makes me think of tennis. That always struck me. Even the first time I read this, I was like, what? Dude, what? Very icky. Very, very much so.
1: But at the same time, it's like reading it now as an adult rather than the first time I read it when I was in like high school. It also strikes me because I think. Now when I sort of hear the backstory of he was gelded later than most eunuchs so he'd already known the love of a woman and he knew what proper romantic uh, love and feelings were and all these things. It kind of changes the way I read it. Like, it's still inappropriate as fuck. But, like, it also still changed how I perceive it. Because he loved her in a way that, like, probably another eunuch wouldn't have. And I'm sure if he wasn't a eunuch, he wouldn't have been all father. I don't know. So it just, I I read it more like, still inappropriate. But I still have more sympathy for him. Because it's very much like, you wouldn't have chosen to be, like, the uncle figure. The sad, sad... It, it is it's like, his life is very
0: tragic right and his early life especially no question horribly tragic but if you're thinking sexually about someone who but i read it
1: more like it's not like an active is. yeah but i don't read it anymore i think as like an active i i almost read it now as like a more pastorally like Oh, she is so lovely and the ship has sailed and I'm very sad. It, it, to me, it reads more as like a reflective, wow, I'm using the tragedy of my past to look at this. And it's almost like the split screen of the what if that you're imagining in the other world versus then what you're actually doing in the present. I don't know. It just, it read as like a split screen to me now. If
0: he wasn't fixated on Lustrous in particular, then I think I'd probably go more with that if he was like a oh it's it's so sad that tannis and lostris have this thing and i will never have it with anyone but it's the fact that he specifically is yearning for that relationship with lostris i think makes me really uncomfortable
1: yeah that's true that that's true I mean, in a lot of its circumstance, because he's forced, because he is her father's slave, because Lord and Teth just, like, forces. But he also, also, like, forced the guardianship on him. Because I'm I'm sure that if he had a choice long ago, he probably would have been like... Oh, I love her and I don't really want to be around. Can you send me to do something else? I don't want to be the one to raise her because it's very painful. Obviously, as a slave, he had no choice. And, and Teff was like, well, you're obviously the best person to take care of her. So you will raise her. I, it, it's one of those like forced temptation things where it's probably like if he did fixate on her, he'd be like, yeah, I'm just going to remove myself and then it won't be an issue. It evokes a lot of this like, you know, haven't you ever like caught feelings for someone And you know it's never going to happen, but, like...
0: Not my children, though. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is honestly where I'm falling down. It's the fact that, yes, he was forced into this role, but it's still a role he has. He is still her caretaker. He is still the person who, like, changed her fucking diapers.
1: Okay, I will admit I am not a parent, so I can't come at it from that perspective. I mean, but also I'm like... They're not blood related. Yes, he did raise her, but they're not related. I mean, it still doesn't make it right for sure. I think I just read it in a different context because I'm like, you're not related, it's not. So you are, well, and in the ancient world, I guess also we're forgetting the key ingredient, which is they don't, they're Mm -hmm. not bound by like the restrictions we are of today's morality, which does impact it a lot, but I'm reading it more from the, yeah, if there's someone that you like caught feelings for once, I don't know. I think Um, that's
2: also part of what makes the, the first person narrative so clever is that it kind of makes you more sympathetic to Taita than you might otherwise be, because it's kind of forcing you into him, like seeing everything through his perspective because of the, the first-person narrative. And it's and it's also told, and just this really, like, just the, the, the writing itself is so... It seems so personal it's a little bit like over at the top for sure but at the same time it's kind it's just it seems very personal and so you can kind of put yourself into his character more and so i think that's really interesting that readers can have these these really polarizing (laughs) perspectives on on these issues whether they're sympathetic or not i think that's it's really it's quite a talent as an author to inspire something like that
1: no, that that definitely is a really good point, Brianna, because I guess, like, I knew, like, just as a, as a reader, and I love good writing, I think that it's, you know, it's written brilliantly because, yeah, in no other context am I going to be like, you know, I feel bad because to me, the, I don't think immediately of, like, your child. I think of, like, unrelated, forced into a situation. You did no love. You kind of had a crush on a person, and it's like you are forced to be in the situation. And so you kind of feel bad. And like, yeah, so, so to me, none of it immediately comes up as parental. Like, I have to actually sit here and remind myself, oh, there's like that parental element, because I definitely don't like on first pass through. That's not where my brain goes. But again, for like someone like Megan with a vastly different experience, that's like foremost, you can't see any, you know, it's hard, you would have to think about a different yeah, no, it is brilliantly. Right. You know, this that's
2: this makes me very much look forward to Megan your thoughts on the end of the book. Very interested.
1: Yeah, that's going to be interesting. I'm like, but yeah, I don't know. I, either way, I I I just wanted to to mention yeah, the 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 star-crossed lovers thing ha- having just finished a whole season on the Iliad and Odyssey. Megan does this spark some trauma memories of Paris and Helen for you because it did for me it doesn't I think because I like
0: both the characters more I like Lustrous. I liked Anna's that they're, they're good kids that they're, they're not sparking a, a decades-long war which is always you know a, a good thing I think early oh god please don't tell me they spark a decades-long war no. Mm, not 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 in the way that not in oh my lord. Okay. So so far they've not sparked any decades-long wars. <laughs> no, they just like they're they're cute together. Yes, there's this over exaggerated passion narrative. Given their ages, it doesn't really read as anything other than very, very accurate. I have a sixteen-year-old in the house at the moment who has a, a girlfriend and it they're adorable together. It's absolutely wonderful but there's a certain amount of pining that does go on. So Lustrous starving herself while a little bit excessive, it wasn't annoying as a reader, I guess.
1: Interesting. Okay. I mean, yeah, there's not like direct, direct parallels, but I found it funny that we spent a whole season talking about like shitting on basically all of Helen's worst decisions. You left your daughter, abandoned her on some flingy passion and just poofed away. And then I'm like, well, again, starving yourself because your man poofed away and you like didn't get a message. But the, the, the not getting the message warning her is literally the Romeo and Juliet. The messenger never got to Romeo. And so, boom, took poison.
0: Tannis and Just they read as more realistic for me, though, I think because such a big thing is made of how they essentially grew up together. They've known each other since Lustrous was like nine and had this friendship, like heavily chaperoned friendship, but they've had this friendship that's just kind of grown. And it felt more real than any of the adaptations of Helen and Paris did, which was this love at first sight thing. This feels much more like a real relationship. You've got all the hormonal overcharged sexuality going on because they're still kids, but there's very clearly like a deep relationship that is built on top of.
1: I mean, that's true. It it definitely goes much deeper than Paris and Helen. It's not just I met you on a whim.
0: Puddle Outside My Door goes deeper than Paris and Helen.
1: (laughs) I mean, we just hate them, but... When you get the mist messenger, I'm just like, I'm pretty sure that Wilbur Smith was directly influenced by Shakespeare. Come on, missed messenger in both cases. I don't know how much he was influenced, but the fact that like at one point in the book, she was like, I'm so dramatic and I wish to die. So give me poison or whatever. There's no part of me that I'm like, I can't see as being very influenced by it and so that's just kind of something in the back of my mind that okay so how much else are you kind of shaping this but with a deeper backstory
0: no i think that's fair we've got a, a couple of minutes but i wanted to ask you and brianna what parts of the book you're most looking forward to going back over for our next episode
2: oh good question i don't want to say it and give it away i have a couple the the very end for one the last page i was sobbing hysterically on a train on my way home from college when I read it for the first time so I, I look forward to that okay but also there's this this really awesome moment when Taita encounters other people and he's with them on his own for a considerable time and he learns a new language I'm gonna leave it as vague as that but i love I love that part I think it's funny I like it.
1: Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about for both. And I remember that last page. I was also (laughs) hysterically crying. I was not on a train, but I was hysterically crying. No shame. (laughs) It's funny because I honestly have to say though, I think one of my favorite things in the, I mean, and it's really kind of horrible actually, because it's sad, but what sparks the excitement for the second half of the book in the first wave of the Hyksos invasion, Taita meets the stallion on the battlefield the way it was written I just remember that got me like hysterically crying as well but this one interaction sparks kind of in the whole second half so I don't want to spoil too much but essentially the the broad brushstroke of it all is that that sparks tight getting horses to become a big part of the Egyptian culture and so the watching the development of how he introduces skeptical scared Egyptians to the horse and chariot and all of it is a, is a wonderful development that I, as someone who rides horses and loves horses, um. it always stuck with me. And I absolutely love how he brings this process along. And the relationship with Hui and the horses, again, is, is, a, is a, a second half highlight, I would say, for me. So I'm really excited. And there is going to be at the end, again, all I will say is Blue Sword. There's a whole thing with Blue Sword.
2: Right, right,
1: right. So Blue Sword, horses, and lots of crying. Yes, and I really liked Blue Sword. It was very sad, but I liked Blue Sword. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thanks for joining us for part one. I know it's a lot of material to cover, so if the thing you were hoping we would cover was not covered, we do apologize, but this was like 400 pages and still only half the book. So join us next week for part two where we will finish the book and then hopefully having read the whole thing we can maybe double back to some of the themes because they all kind of connect in the end so i hope you enjoyed this and brianna thank you for joining us for part one and we are so excited to have you next week for part two all right thank you i'm so excited as well Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review, and you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week.